SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida. 6.20 a.m., 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC and follow him at CJ O'Gara. And Connor, my friend, I have just two words for you. Rivalry week. About time, man. Better than Cupcake Week, right? Much, much better than Cupcake Week, which unfortunately we do have to review. But before we get to that, if you are listening to this podcast, then you know the South loves football. But you know what the South loves even more? Crystal Burgers. That's right. Crystal, home with a classic Crystal Burger. They're a Saturday Down South sponsor this year and are ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way past midnight. It's still only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you would like, 79 cents a pop. But best of all, Crystal is taking care of the SDS fans this fall. Just text SDS to 37793 right now. The letters SDS to 37793. You're going to get two free crystals and a drink. So you got free crystals. You've got 79 cent crystals. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you are going to be treated like the hero that you are. Stop by your local crystal today. And Connor, as we talked about before we can get into the nitty-gritty of Rivalry Week, we do have to review Cupcake Week to some degree. Was there anything to be gained, anything to be learned from what we saw this past Saturday? Man, not a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, you, we, I feel like each week we've, we've said, wow, what a wild week in college football. This happened, this happened. Or we could at least say what an interesting week in college football There wasn't really anything interesting about Cupcake Week from the top down. I mean, when you have all top 10 teams win by an average score of 44 to 14, I think that kind of says it all. And you had some, maybe a couple surprises here and there in non-Cupcake matchups, but nothing that really changed your overall outlook of the college football playoff. Maybe had Auburn struggled big time in the second half against Louisiana Monroe, we could have been looking at a situation in which um, maybe Auburn, people were second-guessing you know, their credentials as a, as a two-loss team, but you know, that, of course, didn't happen. And we're pretty much left in the same spot that we were last week, at least among the playoff contenders. Yeah, as far as the SEC on SEC action we saw in Week 12, not a whole lot of surprises. We had Georgia putting it on pretty good. Kentucky just solidifying the fact that the dogs are the class of the East, and Kentucky still has another jump or two to make. Mississippi State and Arkansas was interesting early. The Hogs got a bunch of breaks, a 14 to nothing lead. But once actual football was played squarely, Mississippi State was a better team and won by a touchdown. LSU and Tennessee, the, the weather was pretty incredible to watch for a while. But what do we learn there? Not very much. LSU is getting better. Tennessee is going nowhere. And then you have Texas A&M and Ole Miss. That was mildly interesting here and there. Ole Miss just didn't quite have enough, couldn't make the plays at the end. Texas A&M continues to sort of play a little better than a lot of people had anticipated. And Missouri and Vanderbilt, we didn't learn a lot there either. The Tigers are getting appreciably better. This is a bold team now. Credit to Barry Odom, especially after the way we have talked to him about him ourselves on this show over the course of the season. 
And Vanderbilt, now 4-7, and seven, can't get a win in the SEC, and just seems like the doormat it usually is in the East. So we didn't learn a whole heck of a lot. That's what we need rivalry week for. That's what we need week 13 to truly sort out how the SEC ends uh, when we're all said and done here. To be clear, Cupcake Week exists because rivalry week. Exactly. They work one, one comes off the other. Right. I mean, and so for as much as we complain about Cupcake Week and how every team should have a nine-game conference schedule, and I do 100% believe that it should be universal across the board. Otherwise, we should have different sets of, of, of parameters for what teams are playing for. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's quickly washed away when we have all of these big-time matchups in the final week of the regular season and a lot of things to really look forward to. Now, as far as Cupcake Week, we, we talk about it for the ACC and the SEC, and it's really a, a product of the eight-game conference schedule. You know, the, the conferences with nine, with nine uh, conference games, you know, they don't necessarily have that luxury, but it felt even more like a cupcake week because you only had one matchup of two top 25 teams, and that was, I was, that was actually at that matchup last weekend with Michigan and Wisconsin up there in Madison. And other than that, I mean, the slate was pretty weak overall, so that's why it feels more, maybe more like college football fans got cheated, so to speak, and that's why you know, you're hearing a lot, of, uh, a lot of outrage about cupcake week. But it's all washed away with, with rivalry, rivalry week and then conference championship week and what's become with the college football playoffs. So, I mean, I think all of that, the, you know, sort of the frustration from fans is, is going to be quickly forgotten once we get underway with all these great games that, I mean, are, are kicking off earlier in the week too, which is, you know, a, a little extra Thanksgiving treat for us. Yeah, one of my favorite anecdotes from Cupcake Week this past week was I referred to it as Cupcake Week like people do in our line of work, and I heard from a bunch of Kentucky fans because Kentucky was playing Georgia, and oh, here's the bulletin board material, and the Wildcats aren't cupcakes, and this is going to get back to Benny Benny Snell, and here comes the update. And like Kentucky was just so offended to be included in Rivalry Week, and it doesn't really exist. Well, last year, Kentucky played Austin P. In week 12, right before Louisville. So everybody is guilty of this. You have 12 games. You have to fill out a schedule. As you said, there's only eight conference games. Some other conferences played nine, so there's fewer opportunities for scheduling mishaps. But we need to talk about the FCS games in particular. Alabama and Mercer. Of course, that game was being played in Bryant-Denny Stadium. Under no stretch of the imagination is the Tide ever going to go to Macon and play at Mercer. 56 to nothing. They're subbing in backups by the middle of the second quarter. And then at South Carolina, they welcomed Wofford, the Terriers, I believe. You're certainly not going to go to Wofford and play a game. You only have to play those games in the big stadiums at Williams Bryce. That was 31 to 10, so a little more interesting. The Terriers can be frisky with the triple option offense they run, but. You know what? You can argue both sides of this coin till you're blue in the face. You know, one morning you wake up and you say, why do we have this game? It's not interesting. The outcome is predetermined. The winning you know, percentage is 99.9 out of 100. So what is the point? But then on the other day you wake up and you say, you know what? If Mercer's going to have an athletic department at all, it needs to schedule games like this. The Bears played Auburn and Alabama, by the way, this season. They got a mil- about a million bucks for each game. That two million bucks gets spread across an awful lot of places at a school like Mercer. They can't survive without these games. So what say you? Does one argument mean more to you than the other? 
Well, I agree with you 100%. I, you know, if you've been around small-time college athletics and if you've seen some of these FCS programs, they absolutely need that money. It is so important. I think we, we take for granted, you know, when we talk about the SEC, we take for granted how expensive it is to field a college football team and the expenses that go with it, especially when you don't have 100,000 people filling up your stadiums on a given Saturday. So I agree 100% that these teams need these games. Now, what I think is interesting, and Danny Cannell, your boy, uh, posed, this, uh, posed this, this theory on Twitter uh, to change sort of the scheduling format that goes with this, that you could still benefit those FCS squads, but at the same time you could transition into this nine-game conference schedule, and that would be scheduling these FCS games as spring games, essentially. And you could still have all the TV rights, and you could still have all the money at stake there, because let's be honest, who in Athens is not going to that game in the middle of spring when there's nothing else going on? Of course, you're still going to be able to sell tickets for that, and you're still going to have the TV money coming in. But the problem is that you're not necessarily going to get the big-time programs to agree to that because they don't want to face these teams when they're not in midseason form, and they don't want to risk potential upsets because that's that's a tough thing to sum. Let's say you know you are in Alabama and you, you struggle with Mercer – your fan base has an entire offseason to pick that apart and, to, and to, to criticize that. So there's there's downsides to everything. I think that that idea, though, is at least kind of interesting because I think we do want to, you know, in college athletics, we do want to sort of benefit uh, these FCS programs because, to, to be honest, FBS programs need them too, and they would love a guaranteed uh, win on their schedule. I mean, look at Florida. Florida's played nothing but Power 5 opponents until UAB this past week, and it was a grind, man. I mean, because of Hurricane Irma uh, canceling that early season game against Northern Colorado, we didn't get to see what Florida would look like against these cupcake teams, and it's tough. I mean, you need those cupcakes on your schedule, but maybe this format can be tweaked so that all parties are a little bit happier. Uh, if there is a perfect solution, I haven't seen it yet. Well, there is no perfect solution, and this is what you, ha- you get this in college football versus, say, the NFL, where you have one league, you have 32 teams, you have a commissioner, owners primarily on the same page, and you can make changes as necessary. Maybe we'll finally see some changes to preseason games in the NFL, which are just a complete waste of time, yet cost the fans just as much money as a regular season game. But college football doesn't have that luxury. You have 130 teams, all with different interests. You have five power uh, conferences. You have other conferences outside the Power Five that all want to do things that benefit them. But you know what? I think these things are just a necessary evil. I think Danny Cannell's idea is original. I think there's some merit for it, and maybe that could happen. But I think that the negatives probably outweigh the positives there. Now, does it make more sense for Mercer, since we're talking about them, to travel to Athens for the spring game, the G-Day game, in April, as opposed to making it to Athens for a regular season game, say, in week one? Yeah, I suppose so. Maybe you could drum up a little more interest. But all of a sudden, a spring game becomes more like a real game. And especially lately, the spring games... They're glorified scrimmages. I've attended a couple spring games the last couple of years, and these things are resembling football, actual football, less and less because it's all about just implementing your system and making sure absolutely nobody gets hurt. You can't have some undersized, under-recruited 215-pound linebacker from Mercer who's just going to go crazy on a blitz, and before you know it, Jake Fromm blows out an ACL, and there goes Georgia's season. So I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's not a bad idea. But I think, these, I think these FCS games simply have to happen 
And the, the spring game idea is unique, interesting, but there's not enough to ever really get it off the ground. I agree. I, I, and I think that we're moving more towards um, a, a universal system in which we're going to have nine conference games. We're not going to um, – maybe every school is going to have one FCS game. I, I don't know. Or that's – they've got to find some way to value that with the selection committee if we are going to have – Everybody judged on the same playing field because it's not fair if you're having if you're throwing in one FCS game as opposed to you know a Big Ten or a Pac-12 or a Big 12 school playing that additional Power Five game. So I do think that that's a, a challenge that needs to be overcome. Um, and especially as now we're you know now we're in the season where we're picking apart resumes. It's a little bit different if we're talking about an FCS game in the first or second week of the season. And we get all of these out of the way. But when we're talking, when we're picking apart resumes, and we're you know we're talking about Georgia and Auburn playing, and then the next week we're talking about you know a complete non-factor, and we're not going to judge anything that Auburn does against you know Louisiana Monroe for the playoff. We just we we really can't unless they completely collapse. So that's the dynamic that's difficult. Now that we've gotten into this um, this week by week evaluation of of the resumes as it is with the ranking show. Um, I think that that's a challenge that they need to overcome in the playoff era. How they do that, um, I, I don't know. But there's, uh, it is an issue, and it's one that needs to, to be addressed, I think, at least so that it's, it's, it's uniform. We, we just can't have certain teams you know, being, being judged for playing weaker teams down the stretch. It needs to be all the same moving forward, or else you know, we're, this thing is going to get more subjective than ever. Another thing that college football fans need to realize is just how difficult it is to make a schedule in college football. It's not like the NFL. The NFL has 16 games with 32 teams, and the schedules make themselves. The, the teams don't have any say in it. You have six games against your own division. You play each divisional opponent twice, and then you have a rotating schedule every other year or so versus you're going to play the West from this conference and then you'll play the East from this conference. So there's a total of eight games there. And then you're going to play some other games based on where you finished. If you finish first in the NFC West, then you might play the team that finished first in the AFC North last season. So the schedule is made automatically in the NFL. That's not the case in college football. So you can criticize from the outside Alabama for scheduling Mercer all you want. You can get on South Carolina's case for scheduling Wofford all you want. But if you're the athletic department for Alabama and you pick up the phone to some other school out there and say, hey, how would you like to come to Tuscaloosa and play a football game? How often is that a warm phone call to make? If you're a power five school, if you're a group of five school, do you really want to go play Alabama? Do you want to chalk up basically an automatic loss? Do you want to subject some players to some injury, maybe make a funky road trip at the odd time of year? It's very difficult to make these games actually happen. And again, I ha the example I have off the top of my head, because I'm a Florida State guy, I remember years ago, Florida State had a home-and-home -home schedule with West Virginia, which I thought was going to be a lot of fun. Coach Fisher has West Virginia ties. Coach Bowden had West Virginia ties. These two teams have played against each other in bowl games here and there. It was a nice little home-and-home -home I was looking forward to just as an alum of that school. But then West Virginia made a coaching change. They bring in Coach Holgerson. And one of the first things they do is buy themselves out of that contract. They were supposed to come to Tallahassee before Florida State went to Morgantown. But they bought out of the contract. They didn't want to play those games. Well, now Florida State has an 11-game schedule instead of 12. They have about four or five months before the game's actually going to be played. What are you going to do? 
They're stuck with Charleston Southern. And I'll never forget that. Everyone criticized Florida State for scheduling Charleston Southern that year, but they called other schools. They called all kinds of Power 5 schools. They wanted to play a legit opponent. Nobody would say yes. So you're forced to call the Charleston Southern just to fill the gap. You offer them $900,000. That pays for a year's worth of food for their entire athletic department. You can understand the argument. Making these schedules is so much more difficult than fans realize, which is why you see some of these games scheduled already for 2025 and 2031. They're so far down the road because that's where the gaps are. It's very difficult to fill them. Oh, absolutely. And so... For kind of a current example of that, look at Wisconsin. Everybody is everybody blasted Wisconsin for playing BYU. BYU is terrible. How could they schedule BYU, Cupcake, BYU? Um, do you realize that when Wisconsin added BYU to the schedule, it had double-digit wins in five of its last six seasons? Like, they scheduled that game in 2012 when BYU had won 11 games, 11 games, 10 games, 11 games, 10 games. They were a top 25 team almost every year. And you're Wisconsin, you're scheduling a, a home and home with them. You've got to go out to the West. Like, th- that was not an easy cupcake game. Yeah, BYU is a terrible team this year, but people that sit there and blast their schedule, I mean, it's the same thing with Washington and Rutgers. Rutgers was actually a pretty decent team when Washington put that on the schedule. I know that's hard to believe now, but... Rutgers looked different with Greg Schiano and even in the beginning of the Kyle Flood era. So people that get obsessed with blasting scheduling don't realize how far out these things happen. And by the time these games actually come around, we could be talking about completely different narratives. And scheduling in itself is just such a tricky thing to do in this day and age of college athletics, especially when these matchups are put together sometimes, you know, five to ten years in advance. Like, it's there's not a perfect system for this, and this is just – one thing that we're going to deal with year after year, but still fans are going to complain no matter what, because that's what fans do. That's what fans do. And there's one thing that makes it easier to digest these FCS games program by program. It's if they go out there and they do schedule a legit opponent. Now, if you just get two FCS teams and two group of five teams, and that's your four non-conference yeah, that's really, really difficult to justify. I know the Big 12 in particular has been criticized of that. The rise of the Baylor program, one of the reasons they had trouble uh, getting just credibility nationally is because they kept playing schools like Lamar in their out-of-conference and they wouldn't go play anybody who mattered. But you can criticize Alabama for having Mercer on the schedule, but remember, they opened up on a neutral site against Florida State. And then Auburn, you can criticize for having a school like ULM, which is not FCS, by the way. ULM has been a giant killer in the past. But let's remember that Auburn is coming off a home-and-home against Clemson. That's justifiable. When you fill your non-conference with nothing but cupcakes, that's when you have resume issues if you're trying to go to bowl games and the like. As long as you schedule a Titan, I can be acceptable of the one cupcake. I would love it if if all of a sudden everybody just took a Purdue-like approach uh, to scheduling, Purdue scheduled Louisville on a neutral at a neutral site in Indianapolis, and then had to go to Missouri, which at the time when they scheduled that matchup looked a lot more difficult than it was. But a team that already has a nine-game conference schedule and is saying, "Yeah, we'll go play two Power Five teams. I don't care. Whatever. We'll we'll face a really good Ohio team at home, and that'll round out our non-conference play." That's never going to happen, though. And I think in this day and age of college athletics, to assume that everybody needs to beef up their non-conference schedule is you know, a little bit ridiculous. As long as you have that one, you know, decent non-conference Power Five game, I think that you can you can sort of slide. But 
Yeah, I mean, just as you said, if you're going to have two FCS and two group of five teams, that's when we're going to have that conversation, and that's when it's really not fair for the rest of college football. All right, the ACC guy is talking too much ACC, and the Big Ten guy is talking way too much Big Ten. Sounds like we need to move on to the next topic. But before we do so, the Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. College football is wrapping up its regular season a tier. But rivalry week is finally here. Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Clemson, South Carolina, Florida, Florida State, and, of course, the Iron Bowl, Alabama, Auburn, We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in the business, having served over a million and a half customers, and they've been the place to go for almost 30 years. Best of all, Ticket City is offering $20 off for all of our readers and podcast listeners. All you have to do is go to TicketCity.com, enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout. You're going to get 20 bucks off the game of your choice. Again, that's TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game. It's the end of the regular season, folks. Visit Ticket City today. All right, Connor, we got to get on the coaching carousel because it's that time of year. There seem to be all kinds of momentum for Chip Kelly to Florida over the weekend yet to be announced. Is that a good sign, a bad sign? We don't know. John Gruden, of course, to Tennessee. Those rumors are so vicious. Anything besides Gruden saying yes and going to Rocky Top feels like it's going to be a disappointment. Just your general temperature of the room with the SEC coaching changes, some of the moves that have been made already, some of the moves we anticipate being made, and some of the names out there to potentially fill the open slots. You know what? For all the rumors, the groomers, and everything in between that have been going around, I love that these teams are still taking home run cuts. I love that they're saying, you know what, we're going to go after a, a big shark and we're going to try and land it. You know, there's, in, in my opinion, there is nothing wrong with going out and doing that. If you have the money to throw around, why, why not go after the, those big-time guys? Now, there's one thing, uh, there's, it's one thing to be going after a big-time guy, and there's another thing to have realistic expectations. Now, what, what kind of money that these guys are going to go after, that's, I mean, we'll see if, if and when those, those terms are, are made public. But, you know, Tennessee right now with, with the whole Gruden thing, you know, it, I'll, I'll admit that it got a little bit more serious than I thought. I think the fact that he hasn't necessarily denounced it, and it's just been people like Sean McDonough who have come out and said, uh, oh, he's not going to take the job or blah, blah, blah. But he's had, you know, Gruden has had plenty of opportunities to say, I'm not taking this, and it's not a, this is – you know, my focus is on ESPN, and I don't want to do anything else to, to jeopardize that. You know, he hasn't really come out and said that yet. And we're, we're still kind of waiting on this thing to, to be made official that it's not going to happen, which for Tennessee fans and Tennessee message boards, that sliver of hope is all they need. And I can't really blame them. I mean, think about the season that was for Butch Jones and, and what this program has become. I, I, I get why this – this fan base is so excited just for the possibility of it. Even though it doesn't look like it's going to happen, in my opinion, I think it's still extremely interesting that, you know, they're at least getting to this point. This isn't just, you know, September message board being thrown around. This is an opening, and this is Tennessee saying, we're, we're going to do whatever we can to try and get the right guy in here. And if that is Gruden, I guess we're going to find out. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm more interested than I thought I'd be a couple months ago. What say you? 
This is the only thing I want to tell the Tennessee folks that are out there. Once this John Gruden thing doesn't happen, and I'm 99% convinced it's not going to happen. I've said this on this show and several others around the country. I equate John Gruden to that happily married man who likes to put his wedding ring in his pocket every now and then when he goes out to the bar just to see if he can get a little bit of attention. Now he's happily married. He loves his kids. He's never going to act on this impulse, but... He just loves a little bit of attention from that good-looking lady at the end of the bar. He can't help himself. That's what I think John Gruden is, which is why he's been dancing around these potential openings basically since he went into the booth nine years ago. Whether it was going back to the Raiders or going back to the Bucks or Tennessee the last time around, there was Notre Dame. He's been linked to all kinds of things, and he loves to comment on them. He calls everything a dream job, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't, I'm not saying the game has passed him by or anything like that, but he loves to leave the door open because it keeps his name in the news. And he loves being told how much of a genius he is and how much of a perfect fit he would be. But the only request I have for Rocky Top Nation is, you know what? When it doesn't happen this time, let's move on from Gruden once and for all. Because the groomers, I don't know if that word is in the Urban Dictionary yet, but it is just completely off the rails. It is basically hijacked the last month of the college football season. If it doesn't happen, please, Vol Nation, close the book on Gruden, enjoy him on TV, and realize that if he's not coming now, he's never coming. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would love to see the reaction of Tennessee fans if and when it doesn't happen. Um, because I think a lot of people will be like, well, what have I been doing for the past three months of my life? I mean, I've been obsessing over these a guy who isn't even going to leave his job to to come coach in college, and I don't know how serious it's gotten, but um, I I think that, you know, from an entertainment standpoint, we're going to be, you know, until this is made official, we're still going to kind of be looking at all these different things, and Tennessee fans are still going to go crazy with every, you know, blonde-haired guy they see at a restaurant in Knoxville, apparently, but, um, you know, the more interesting search to me right now is what's going on at Florida, and you know, the the fact that we have all this Chip Kelly talk and, you know, whether or not Scott Strickland was able to to persuade Kelly and, and his people and uh, and make this a, a realistic possibility, you know, sort of remains to be seen at this point. But I think Kelly is uh, just a guy that uh, has, has some options right now, and I think he's going to be able to weigh those options. What's happened at UCLA the past few days with the firing of, of Jim Mora Jr. is certainly interesting. And that has to appeal to Kelly. I know that he's in a, a different situation than most, um, given the fact that he's had a little bit of a checkered past, given the fact that he's been fired from his last two jobs. I think that uh, th- this situation is not maybe as easy as, as, some, as some Florida fans might have thought it was going to be. Um, I don't think this, is, this was going – I didn't think this was going to be an open and shut deal for him uh, early on in the week. But, I mean, crazier things have happened, and we know that – uh, Chip Kelly is a guy that doesn't really like to, he, you know, he, he kind of goes, uh, goes to the beat of his own drum, so to speak. So uh, I'm interested to see what happens with him in the, in the next few days and if we get any sort of clarity on what direction he wants to go because you feel like he's got a lot of things working in his favor right now and he's going to be able to sort of pick and choose what he wants his next move to be. Yeah, I know a lot of Florida fans are very upset and they're disappointed and certainly impatient that they don't have this vacancy filled already. But if you're Chip Kelly, why would you be in any hurry whatsoever? The regular season isn't even over yet. That's usually when these coaching change happen. 
Now, I know McIlwain was a little early and Jones was a little early and Mora was a little early, but there are going to be other openings that come out there, Power 5 and otherwise, maybe even NFL openings if he wants to get back into the pros. So he's sitting pretty right now. He's still getting paid from his last job, so he doesn't need the money or anything. He's got his comfy ESPN gig, which he seems to be working into just fine. So there's no reason for him to go ahead and say yes to the Gainesville booster types who want to fly up to New Hampshire and wine and dine him. Maybe some people were expecting him to come back to Gainesville on that plane and sign the dotted line to be the guy. But again, he's got all the time in the world, and you have to wonder if Florida's going to get impatient with him and move to a second or third name on the list. But before we go there, I want to talk about Coach Kelly and how much of a fit he is for this program. Now, he's a huge name. He would certainly win the press conference. I think he could fix the offense instantly because from an X's and O's perspective, he is brilliant, and he can game plan his way around other coaches. I have full faith and confidence he can do that. But how great of a fit would he be for this particular program? He doesn't love to recruit. He has said that before. He didn't win at Oregon because he was a monster on the recruiting trail. It's because he coached up and out-schemed a lot of solid players, turned them into stars, and just beat up on other teams because he knew what he was doing. But you have to be a recruiting monster at a place like Florida. That's not really his M.O. And on top of that, this is a guy who doesn't always play nice. Even with the success that he had at Oregon, even with the success he had with the Philadelphia Eagles. Remember, he got into some power clash there, wanting to have say over player personnel and the like. He goes to San Francisco. He lasted one year. Trouble with ownership. Trouble with the, how he handled the Colin Kaepernick situation. Was, there, was everybody on the same page in the locker room? We've already gotten rid of a guy in Gainesville in Jim McElwain who didn't really play nice with the higher-ups. Do they want to go that route again? So I think in the short term, it sounds like a brilliant idea. In the long run, I don't know if he's a great fit for that job. It's an overcorrect. That's that's what it is. And you're looking at the offenses that were produced under Jim McElwain, and you're saying, man, we can't have our fans making the same sort of complaints. We need a guy who's going to be able to light up the scoreboard, and that's the assumption that Chip Kelly would instantly be able to do that in Gainesville. But you're right. There are, there are definite concerns there. This is not an open and shut, number one, clear cut, let's go get him big time candidate. For all the reasons that you mentioned about the way that things have ended for Chip Kelly, I think that that's a, a legitimate concern for Florida. And I don't think that you can look at him and say that he is automatically going to be a fit with the higher ups in Gainesville. They need somebody who can play ball. I mean, there's a reason that Florida has struggled to have that consistent. Um, steady, long-term coach. I mean, even Urban Meyer got burnt out. I mean, we're looking at a guy who, uh, Chip Kelly, who has not necessarily uh, been everybody's favorite person. Uh, I think that's, that, that's a fair thing to say at this point. And the recruiting aspect is, is something that maybe we haven't talked about enough with him. You know, he, he's, got, he's got California roots. He's going to go out and want to uh, recruit in the state of California. He's a West Coast guy. He doesn't have a whole lot of Southeast ties. I mean, this is a guy who never had a top 10 recruiting class at Oregon, yet he went to four straight BCS bowl games. That's an impressive thing to do, but if you're going to be the head coach of Florida, you've got to win those battles in that state. You've got to be able to beat out some Florida State, some Miamis, which is gaining a, Miami's getting a whole lot of momentum right now. Even the UCFs and programs like that that Florida never loses to on the recruiting trail – you know, you're, you're going to have some challenges ahead with all the competition in that state, especially if, oh, by the way, Lane Kiffin stays at Florida Atlantic. But that's another uh, topic for another time. 
I think Chip Kelly has some major hurdles to overcome uh, if he does get this job. And I, I don't think that this is you know a guy who is necessarily going to be able to uh, automatically replicate that success that he had at Oregon. Now, is he going to be different than the rest of you know what the SEC East has become offensively? Absolutely, and I think he's going to make defensive coordinators have to do a lot of different things in game plan for him, which is exactly what Florida needs right now because Florida has been so predictable under Jim McQueen. So it's, it's a complex situation, and it is not something where if, if Florida hires him, I'm all in and I'm you know, getting ready for the next Florida national championship team. I think there are uh, some, some major hurdles to overcome yet. Now, there's another opening we assume is going to happen probably right after the game is played on Saturday. But what happens after that could lead to two openings. And I'm talking about Brett Bielma at Arkansas. I've talked to a decent amount of people in the Razorback State the last week or two. There's really nothing he can do to keep his job. And if we didn't know that already, now the athletic director who hired him, Jeff Long, he's been shown the door. So a new guy is going to come in. New ADs tend to like to hire their own coaches. So... This team is probably on its way to four and eight if it can't beat Missouri on side on Friday. That is, that's a Friday game on Thanksgiving weekend. Chances are Coach Bielema is going to be out, and the name that everyone's throwing out there is Gus Malzahn, the current Auburn coach. Has a chance to win the West, has a chance to win the SEC, has a chance to go to the college football playoff, and in typical Auburn fashion, has a chance to be fired as well. He has Arkansas roots. I know he was born in the state of Texas, but. Didson growing up in Arkansas. He was a walk-on wide receiver with the Hogs back in the day. He has coached at Arkansas State. You talk about relationships and sort of knowing the temperature of that room. Coach Malzahn does. Coach Bielema didn't. Great coach. We love him at the podium. But this was a Midwest guy who's from Illinois and coached to Wisconsin, played at Iowa. All of a sudden, he's in Fayetteville, a very, very unique place on the SEC landscape and may have just been a square peg in a round hole. That would not be the case for Malzahn. So, two-part question, Bielma, your take on his tenure with the Hogs, and B, what do you think about Malzahn possibly downgrading, if you will, from Auburn to Arkansas? Well, I do think Bielma's gone. I, I think that that's, that's a foregone conclusion at this point. I don't think that you can have the type of season that he did and expect an athletic director to say, yeah, no, you're fine. We're, uh, we're going we're gonna to stick with you. You're the guy that we want running this program. I mean, it would be a different story if they were an eight- or nine-win team this year, but they've completely collapsed, and now that they're not going to be even going to a bowl game, that decision is going to be an easy one to make without Jeff Long. And I think that's part of the reason why they got Jeff Long out of the way, because they knew that they had to make a change at the head coaching position. And ironically enough, you know, I, I wrote last week, this is the part in the, in the podcast where I plug my own column, of course. I was wondering um, where it was. Yeah, no, it took a little bit longer this time, but I got to it, don't worry. Um, you know, Bielema, I think, is, makes a lot of sense at Nebraska. If Nebraska, for whatever reason, strikes out on Scott Frost, I think Bielema could do a whole lot of good things uh, in the Cornhusker State. I think for the reasons that you just mentioned, those Midwest ties would be huge, and they would really bring him back to his brand of football and the style that he wants to be able to play. Now, having said that, I don't know if the guy who replaces Bielema wherever he goes is Malzahn. I, as, as much as I keep hearing those reports this week, I question if, if Auburn is really going to be able to, to make that kind of decision if, or if Malzahn's going to be able to make that kind of decision and decide, you know what, this is just too much of a pressure cooker. 
Uh, I'm really not liking my situation here. I never feel like I was truly embraced, even though I've done some great things for this program. And, I, you know, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go to Arkansas. I'm going to go where it's more comfortable. If Arkansas can somehow land Gus Malzahn, that's a, that's a home run, in my opinion. Given what they've gone through the last couple years, sort of an identity crisis down there, I think that makes a ton of sense if you're Arkansas and you can go out and get a guy like Gus Malzahn. But is Malzahn really going to leave Auburn on his own terms? Is he going to be fired? I don't know. That, that to me, just doesn't seem – I don't think you can base that entirely on an Alabama game. I, I'm not one for basing a coach's tenure on one game. Um, but that just seems to be the direction that we're trending in right now. And I, I, I find that incredibly surprising. But I guess, I mean, we're going to have a lot more clarity on this whole situation maybe by this time next week. And that's sort of weird to think about given how hot Auburn is right now. Yeah, I don't know if we're necessarily judging Malzahn and Auburn on the Iron Bowl, but it would be just sort of the, the product as a whole. And this is a program that is not satisfied with eight, nine wins. And yeah, every now and then you get to 10 or 11 and you're nationally relevant. They expect to be like Alabama, which may be impossible, but those are the expectations on the Plains. They want to be in contention for the West, for the SEC, and the whole kit and caboodle on a regular basis. They see no reason why. They've got the money, they've got the facilities, they have the same access to recruits, but usually they're looking up to the Crimson Tide for all the reasons we know and understand already. But I was talking to Bo Mattingly on this show just a week ago. He is the guy to know on the radio in the state of Arkansas. He is syndicated everywhere, very respected voice. He has lots of friends inside that program. And speaking about Malzahn, this is why it may make some sense. This is a guy at Auburn who, as you said, maybe never truly felt 100% appreciated. He shows up year one, and he's a Kelvin Benjamin alley-oop away from winning a national championship in 2013. There's been some hiccups ever since, and this is a program that is not okay with eight, nine wins, and then every now and then being relevant. What would Arkansas do to be a regular eight-win team right now? They're staring four and eight in the face right now. They won seven games last year. They won three games, I believe, the first year that Bielema got there. So this is a program, it doesn't have the same expectations at, as Auburn. Yes, they want to win there, but I think if, you, if you're that 7-8-9 win team, at least regularly, you're a little more happy there, and maybe you're appreciated, and they feel like you're one of them, and, you're, and they're okay with that. He'll never be one of the guys at Auburn like he would be at Arkansas. So if anything, you hit the reset button a little bit just in terms of having boosters and fans and everybody on your back. I mean, Malzahn has to be incredibly stressed just having this job every single week, all this speculation. Is he staying? Is he going? Is he a good coach? Is he a bad coach? Is he good enough? Do we want him here for the long term? If he makes a switch, whether it's his decision or not to get out of Auburn, at least he can relax and sort of start afresh and go to a program that isn't so crazy to run them out of town so quickly. I don't want to sound judgmental here, but I, I just want to get your opinion on this. Does, does Melzahn look – he looks stressed to me on the sideline. Like, he looks like he's so, like, angsty. He doesn't have this, like – and I guess Saban does too to a certain extent. But whenever I look at Melzahn on the sideline, and I try not to invest too much into this, but he looks stressed – me i mean like really really stressed like burnt out with with his job almost is, is that a fair thing to say at this point i don't think it's unfair but considering the temperature of that room wouldn't you be stressed too right so that leads me to my next point is that if this happens and malzahn d- 
decides, you know what, I'm I'm done. I'm 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 getting out of town. How good is this Auburn job really? Because yeah, you've got the facilities and you've got the history and you know the prestige and all that stuff and the resources, but you've got to basically come in there and fight over Nick Sa- fight with Nick Saban for recruits. You've got to beat Nick Saban on a yearly basis to truly be appreciated, or at least split the series with him so where it's a good back and forth. And that's what you're judged on. Why am I signing up to do that? If there are 20 jobs out there that I can say, you know what, this is a great Power 5 program, I know I'll be embraced, oh, and by the way, I won't have to compete with Nick Saban just to win my own division, i I, got to think I'm going to be looking elsewhere. And maybe my mindset is different than that of a young and -and up-and-coming coach, but you've got to weigh all these possibilities when you're evaluating the strength of a job. And to me right now, that Auburn job is not a great one to go out and get because of the hurdles that you have to overcome. And the hurdle is Nick Saban. And as long as Nick Saban is in Tuscaloosa and I'm the Auburn coach thinking that I have to beat him on a yearly basis just to have job security, like, that sucks. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to say it. I know you're, you sign up to win games and you sign up to win championships, and we can talk about all those things when you're introduced at the, you know, the introductory press conference and all that stuff. But if at the end of the day you're being judged on how you do against the best team in college football, the best thing that we've seen in the 21st century, that's brutal. And that's an absolute grind. And I don't think it makes this Auburn job as good as some might expect. Yeah, it's probably a lot similar to your job when you're writing columns at the same place where it employs a guy like me. So uh, I guess I can understand that. Um, let's go ahead and move on from the coaching carousel to the Iron Bowl itself. Game of the year in the SEC. I wrote it before the season. This is all SEC fans could hope for is that the Iron Bowl is for all the marbles in the West. And that's exactly what we have. These, these two teams are very, very similar. Run-based offenses. They can throw it down the field when necessary. Terrifying front sevens. Defend the pass very well. Fairly sound on special teams. Look at the numbers up and down the SEC. These teams are very, very similar. Not a heck of a lot of difference. The quarterback position is played differently, of course. Jalen Hurts to Jarrett Stidham. But you know what? This game is in Jordan-Hare, 87,000 strong. This is the biggest game in the rivalry since the kick six game in 2013. It's going to be a sensational environment. What do you think about what the game itself? Tell me how you see it playing out. You're exactly right. This is this is the way you draw it up, man. Like this is this is sort of perfect. The fact that you have uh, an Alabama team that yes is undefeated, but looks somewhat vulnerable. We've talked a lot about the health issues that this team has. Maybe the depth at linebacker, not what it usually is. The fact that you're not necessarily going to have Minka Fitzpatrick at 100. percent And I think there's maybe you know the door is at least open. If this was you know this at this time last year. Alabama looks pretty invincible, and we're talking about if this is the best college football team of all time. But the fact that the door is just kind of open a little bit and Auburn looked as dominant as it did against Georgia, I think it makes this game so much more interesting. The fact that Auburn really did all of the things against Georgia that you would think, okay, to beat Alabama, this is what you have to do. You have to be able to play with some tempo. You have to be able to have balance. You have to have a guy who can stretch the field. And right now, Auburn kind of has all of those things working. Now, you know, there's no guarantee that the Alabama defense doesn't play significantly better than the Georgia defense. We don't know what this Alabama defense is going to show up like uh, on the road in a big-time atmosphere like this. But 
uh, I think this is this is kind of a dream scenario in terms of in terms of interest level. I mean, this is what the Iron Bowl is supposed to be all about every single year, having so much at stake. You know, we're talking division, we're talking SEC championship, we're talking playoff, national championship. All of those things are taken into this equation, and that's what makes rival re- rival we. Oh my goodness! It's always rival difficult to say that. Week. I can't even say it. I'm too excited to say what rivalry week really is. Um, <laughs> but this is kind of the way that you draw it up. This is the way we've been drawing up for the past few months. And it's exciting that, you know, every play is going to sort of feel like make or break in this game. I just hope it lives up to its potential. And bear with me here with this particular tangent. I wonder if Auburn can recreate the performance it had two Saturdays ago when the then number one ranked Georgia Bulldogs came to town. I mean, Auburn played just about a perfect football game. I believe Georgia went down on its opening possession and banged in a touchdown with Nick Chubb. But beyond that, from that point on, Auburn played just about a perfect football game, offense, defense, and special teams. And you wonder if that's the best Auburn can play. And if you talk to any coach, particularly at the college level, he'll tell you that you never get the same team twice. You might play 12 or 13 games, but you're going to get 12 or 13 different iterations of those 85 scholarship players. And I just wonder if that is the absolute max out performance from Auburn and if it's possible to recreate that and do that again. Because that was basically mistake-free football, everything working, running the ball, throwing the ball, defending the run, defending the pass, sound in the special teams, I don't know if they can do that again. And yes, Georgia's a very good team. I think that they still have a chance to win the SEC and go to the playoff, but I think Alabama's even better. I've picked Alabama to run the table this season. I see no reason to change my mind. And yes, there's been some chinks in the arbor for the Tide. The injuries at linebacker and who are they going to throw the ball to aside from Calvin Ridley? Yes, there are some things you could, you know, you can nitpick with with this year's team in Tuscaloosa, but Specifically, my question is about Auburn. After playing so well in that Georgia game, is it possible to even recreate what they did? Yeah, I mean, we're going to find out on Saturday, aren't we? I mean, this is that's that is the ultimate question, and I think a lot of that is associated with what Jared Stidham is going to be able to do in this one because he is the difference maker, just as he's been billed as for the past few months coming into the season. Is he the final piece of the puzzle to beat this Alabama team? Is he the guy who's going to be able to make those plays downfield? And is he going to be able to give, give that different element that Auburn has not been able to have? Because we can sit here and talk about how great Kerryon Johnson is. And he, he is great. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I keep making the Le'Veon Bell comparisons, and I think they're absolutely legit. But how many big-time running backs have beat Alabama? I mean, it's, it's a, we, when, we look about, when we look back at Alabama's defeats, we always look at the quarterbacks. Sean Watson, it's Chad Kelly, it's these guys who have come in here and have done some incredible things against an Alabama defense that looked invincible. And I think if we are, at this time next week, talking about an Auburn win, we're going to be talking about, wow, that was a big-time performance from Jared Stidham. He really did everything that Gus Malzahn asked him to. He had the keepers working where he at least you know established that and gave some sort of sense of misdirection um, in the offense. And not saying that he needs to run the ball 10, 15 times, but he needs to just be willing to do that. And I think that's such a key element to this offense that he's grown more and more comfortable with. If you look back at that Georgia game, he looked like a guy who finally got it. Everything just sort of clicked for him, and he finally understood this offense and this, you know, this square peg, you know, round hole type deal uh, that we were talking about with Stidham throughout the early part of the season. It looked like finally 
all the pieces just fit. So are they going to fit against Alabama? I don't know, but I know that place is going to be absolutely rocking, and if Auburn gets an early lead in this one, man, this, this game is going to be, I mean, I think it's going to break some, some viewership records. I mean, we're, we could potentially be looking at a situation, all right, here's your last Big Ten reference of the day. Just like what we had last year with Michigan and Ohio State, that game in the horseshoe uh, was tremendously viewed and went down to the wire with some big-time implications. I, I don't think it's crazy to suggest that we see the same thing from the Iron Bowl on Saturday. Yeah, let's hope it lives up to its billing, but I want to go to the other side of the ball, and I think a lot of football fans realize just how good Auburn was defensively in that Georgia game. We've talked all year, all decade, really, about the Alabama defense, Georgia under Kirby Smart recreating that blueprint, but, God, Auburn was nasty, specifically in that front seven. Guys like Marlon Davidson in the middle and Jeff Holland off the edge, these guys can really, really ball, but you know what? Jake Fromm is not Jalen Hurts, and I think that Jalen Hurts is just the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card because you can do everything right from a pass-rush perspective, from a filling-your-gaps perspective. You can be assignment perfect and ready to play, but this guy just finds a way to wiggle away and move the sticks, and he does it so effortlessly, and that's what he can do that Jake Fromm can't. And I think that's the reason why I'm going to stick with Alabama to win this game because of number two in Crimson. He's just too good and he's just too relaxed and too calm, and he's done this before. So even in the face of pressure, even when all hell is breaking loose around him, somebody's not open, my left guard missed a block, he can just wiggle away, turn the corner like a lightning bolt, get 12 yards, go out of bounds, and he don't get a finger on the guy. That can be very, very frustrating for a defense, keeping the sticks moving and your defense on the field, can't get off the field on third down. I just think this guy is too good. He's incredibly underappreciated. 22 total touchdowns because he's sitting the second half half the time. He could have much gaudier numbers. And he's got one turnover all season long. As much as this guy handles the football, he's thrown one interception. He's lost zero fumbles. And if you're going to beat Alabama, for the most part, you need a couple of freebies. This guy doesn't give the ball away. And I think that's going to frustrate Auburn even on the road. I just think the Crimson Tide is going to be the Crimson Tide, and mostly because I have that faith in Jalen Hurts. I would agree with that. I, I think this game could actually follow a pretty similar formula to the, the Mississippi State game that we saw a couple weeks ago where Jalen Hurts was just on a different level at the end of that game, and we're maybe left looking at this game like, wow, this kid, uh, he is a, you know, a really, really, really special player that we need to be giving even more love to nationally. Uh, we take for granted the, the decision-making that he has all year and the fact that he doesn't make those big mistakes. There's a reason that Alabama has been able to, to win as many regular season games in a row as they have. I've even lost track of the number. But it's it hurts, and it's you rely on a guy like him to do the right thing in games like this against really good defenses that can beat him to the outside. They have the athletes to be able to contain him in the running game. And you just rely on him to make those, those intermediate throws. Now, I know the intermediate passing game has not necessarily been there for Alabama this year, but i got to think that in a game like this, Hurts is just going to find a way. I think that he is too good uh, and too talented to come up short. Um, I, I always say that in the national championship, I think it could have had a different ending if Hurts was the guy who had the ball in his hands last instead of Deshaun Watson. And I think that we could be looking at a similar scenario in which this is kind of a back-and-forth one possession game throughout, and it's just too much hurts down the stretch. I mean, what what else can you say about this kid? I mean, he is 
the job that he has been able to do since he took over this job as a true freshman last year is nothing short of incredible. And people who say that he's just a system quarterback clearly have not watched him play. They should watch him play on Saturday against a really good Auburn defense on the road. All right, so let's try to build a case for the Tigers in this one. If Auburn wins this game, give me sort of a below-the-radar player that has to have a big performance. And I'm going to go with guys like Will Hastings and Darius Slayton. These are sort of the deep threats. We know Jared Stidham has all that Texas arm in the world, and he can hit guys downfield. That's why this Auburn offense has the vertical element. It's missed so much recently when Malzahn has been there. But these are the guys who can do the shimmy shakes and the deep posts and the post corners and the straight fly routes and just run by people even if they're in that Alabama uniform, if those guys continue to average 20, 25 yards a catch, now you're stretching that defense and on Johnson can do his thing. So those guys have to win one-on-one battles. They have to reel in the ball down the field. So if you get a couple of big plays from guys like Hastings and Slayton, then I like Auburn's chances a lot more. Is there anybody who pops up for you? So I think, you know, a guy that I would have looked at in this spot, I, I thought Cam Pedway could have been a, a difference maker in this game. Um, now it's not looking like he's going to be able to play uh, in the Iron Bowl, but he would have been a guy because uh, you know these goal line situations, when you are in those you know third and short, you need to be able to convert and get touchdowns instead of field goals against Alabama. I think that's so important. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with you. I'm going to go with Slayton. I think he's the guy who can stretch the defense and make those plays downfield and test the Alabama secondary. That's what Auburn needs to be able to do in this one. If they're just going to sit there and try and run the ball all game and they're going to have Stidham try and throw the ball you know, 15 times, this is going to be an LSU-like game. I mean, this is going to feel like Auburn is one-dimensional and they're just not willing to take those chances. But Slayton is the guy who can really take the top off the defense I mean, a guy who's averaging 28 yards a catch on the season, I mean, he is that difference maker. As we saw, that, that catch that he made against Georgia where he just made that, that adjustment on the ball at the goal line was, was incredible. And I think if he can make a couple plays like that, I think Auburn absolutely has a chance to hang around and maybe even pull off the upset in this one. So I know it, it sounds a little bit cliche to just agree with you, but uh, he's the guy that I think can, can really be uh, the, the difference maker for, for Auburn in this one. Uh, if we are talking about uh, a potential upset here. Yeah, for Alabama, one player I want to keep an eye on, certainly not below the radar, but I think this is when Mika Fitzpatrick needs to be Mika Fitzpatrick. He's a guy who's been banged up a little bit recently, but he needs to be 100%, and he needs to be the difference maker for this defense because Auburn does a lot of really good things offensively, and the Tigers can challenge what the Tide do, especially with the personnel down a little bit. So this is a guy, corner, safety, nickelback, even as a baby backer in that dime package. You know what? You're probably going to be in nickel and dime a lot playing against Auburn right now. And in a weird way, that might help Alabama a little bit because they are thin at linebacker. They do have injury issues. And they have a guy like Fitzpatrick that can do linebacker-like things despite being in a DB's body. So he's the type of guy I expect to make some sort of play, rushing off the edge, maybe a strip sack fumble. Maybe he can get his hands on the football. He catches it like most wide receivers in this country. Sensational player. He's a guy in crimson I think needs to have a big game, and I will be watching closely. Is there anybody that you think has to show up if Alabama is going to win this thing on the road? I think it's got to be one of the freshman receivers. Just just like we talked about earlier, how Calvin Ridley, it can't be all Calvin Ridley. I mean, he is, without a doubt, their most important um, offensive player. Like, if he were to go down in this game, I mean, I think you would have some, some big-time problems if you're Alabama. 
Um, but, you know, I, I think this is a game where you have to see Jerry Judy step up, maybe Henry Ruggs. I mean, so, a couple guys who just need to be better than what they've been in so far in the season as possession receivers. Jalen Hurts needs guys he can be able to trust on a 12-yard slant or a quick out, just guys that can pick up those, those chunk yardage plays. And it can't be all Ridley because you've got to think Auburn knows that and Auburn's going to do whatever it can to – to not let him go over the top and, and make that back-breaking play. I think this is a game where you really need to have those young kids step up in big-time moments like this. And even if it's just one or two catches, you know, that, that big touchdown catch, you know, where it's, you know, third and, and, and 15 in the red zone or something like that, and you need a, a freshman receiver to go up and make a play, I mean, I think that's, that's what's really going to push Alabama over the top. If they can get those guys contributing, this offense is going to be on a different level than what we've seen throughout the regular season so far. Connor, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and enjoy the long football weekend. Oh, I, I absolutely will. But I'm going to be eating ham. I'm not a turkey guy. Is that, is that a Yankee thing? Is that, is that bad? Well, you've just solidified the fact you'll never get an invite to my house. (laughs) (laughs) I was holding my breath for one, so I guess I won't anymore. That's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at SaturdayJC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Crystal and Ticket City. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found, and be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.